morning's first reading is from Isaiah 61, 1 to 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for our gospel reading. The Lord be with you, and also with you. The holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Gospel of Christ. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So remain standing. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge and thank you for your presence with us. And we'd ask now that your word would rule over us, your spirit would teach, that you being known and glorified in our midst would be our first and our only concern. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you be seated, please? We have just come through the feasts of Christmas and Epiphany. Feasts that declare clearly and boldly that Jesus has come as king to heal, renew, restore. To set up a kingdom of shalom, peaceful flourishing in every aspect of life. And this glorious good news invites some very natural questions. How then shall we live what would it look like for me, for us, to come under his reign? And perhaps the best place to go to answer such questions is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, called by many the Manifesto of the Kingdom, for it tells us this is what it looks like to come under his reign. This is how his kingship gets expressed in you 
in your world. E. Stanley Jones was a missionary in India in the last century, and he watched, along with the rest of the world, as a Hindu lawyer, Mahatma Gandhi, took seriously the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, while Christians at the time were rationalizing and toning it down. And in reflection on what he beheld, Jones wrote this. A little man in a loincloth in India picks out from the Sermon on the Mount one of its central principles, applies it as a method for gaining human freedom, and the world, challenged and charmed, bends over to catch the significance of the great sight. It is a portent of what would happen if we would take the whole of the sermon and apply it to the whole of life. It would renew our Christianity. It would renew our world. Our present-day Christianity, anemic and weak from the parasites that have fastened themselves onto its life through the centuries, needs a blood transfusion from the Sermon on the Mount in order to renew radiant health within it, that it might throw off these parasites and arise to serve and renew our world. Do you yearn for such radiant health? For a blood transfusion from the Sermon on the Mount? Does our world, our city, need a church that is deeply rooted in the kingdom living of the Sermon on the Mount? Indeed we do. Indeed we do. And so for the coming months, we're going to be looking at Matthew 5 through 7, a section, a sermon I believe that we must return to over and over again as we reorient ourselves to what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom. Now, as we get into the sermon, I think there will be two impressions that it will immediately come right up to the surface. The first, oh, if we could just live this way, it would change our world. And on the heels of that, a second impression, how is it even possible to live this way? Free-flowing forgiveness, love of enemy, a heart freed from anger, lust, worry. How can we possibly live this way? It must require a power beyond our power, a nature beyond our nature, a life beyond our life. Exactly. Exactly. And that's the way that Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount. For the Beatitudes open the door to an entirely new humanity. But before we can hear them rightly, we first must get a framework for understanding. And so today I'm simply going to give four observations before we go quickly through each of the Beatitudes that we might lay a hold of a radiant health of a new humanity. Now, I think it would be incredibly helpful if you would call up on your phones or reach in front of you and grab that pew Bible and turn to page 4 of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5, for I think seeing it as I speak of it will bring it more to life. So first, four observations to set that framework for understanding. Observation one. 
The Beatitudes are the fruit of receiving and experiencing good news. They are the fruit of hearing and experiencing good news. Now, there are, I believe, intentional echoes in this story from a story earlier in the Scriptures where Moses goes up onto the mountain and receives the law, the Ten Commandments, and then comes down and delivers them to his people. And the Ten Commandments are the fruit of hearing and experiencing good news. They are? Indeed, they are. For the Ten Commandments don't begin with the words, Thou shalt not. They begin with the words, I am the Lord your God who rescued you out of slavery in Egypt, therefore you will not. The Ten Commandments are the fruit of receiving and experiencing good news. Now in the Torah, the books of Moses, there's a prophecy that says that someone like Moses will come. And we see part of the fulfillment here in Matthew 5. As Jesus goes up to the mountain and delivers to his people not new commands, but pronouncements of blessing. Blessings that are the fruit of hearing and receiving good news. For immediately preceding the sermon... Jesus proclaims the good news of the kingdom and then illustrates it by healing the sick, breaking the power of evil over people's lives, and then he brings those who are hearing, experiencing good news up to the mountain and receives, gives them these pronouncements of blessing. The Beatitudes are the fruit of receiving, experiencing good news. Observation two. The Beatitudes are the practical application of Jesus' first sermon. They are the practical application of his first sermon. What was his first sermon? Don't worry, it's only one line. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mark expands it a little, still only one line. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. Time is fulfilled. One era is ending. A new one is beginning. God's future is breaking into the present. Heaven is invading the earth. So repent. Turn around. Stop living in step with the way the world is. And start living in step with the way the world will be. The Beatitudes are the practical application of that sermon. The portrait of a person who is living in step with the kingdom. Observation three. Blessedness is not about our subjective state, but about God's objective pronouncement. They're not about our subjective state, but about God's objective pronouncement. The word blessed, makarios, is the word happy. Happy are those who. But that would take us in the wrong direction, because in our mind, Happy has to do with our happenings. Our joy is in our circumstance. These are to be seen as pronouncements, exclamations from God saying, this is how I view and feel about those in whom my kingdom is taking hold. Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. Oh, the blessedness of those who mourn. 
blessedness is not about our subjective state, but about God's objective pronouncement. Finally, observation four. These are not describing eight different kinds of people, but rather eight qualities of the same person. They're not describing eight different kinds of people, but rather eight qualities of the same person. How do we know that? Because the blessing or the promise associated with the first beatitude is the same as the last. Oh, the blessedness of those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Oh, the blessedness of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom. It's an inclusio, a verbal tool to say all of these things are dealing with the same subject matter. Not eight different kinds of people, but eight qualities of the same person. This also means that the promises associated with each of the Beatitudes are filling out for us what the kingdom's all about. If you were to go through the Beatitudes, it's saying the kingdom of God is where tears are wiped away from every eye. The kingdom of God is where God's will is done on earth as in heaven. The kingdom of God is where your hunger and thirst for righteousness, for all things to be made right, is satisfied. The kingdom of God is where we experience the full bounty of his grace and mercy. The kingdom of God is where we see him face to face. The kingdom of God is where you and I take on the character of Jesus, bear true family resemblance. Not eight different kinds of people but eight qualities of a person in whom the kingdom is taking hold. Now that those observations have set the framework for understanding, we can quickly go through the Beatitudes, what John Chrysostom called a golden chain, as each one builds beautifully a one before it and moves us to the next. Oh, the blessedness of the poor. In spirit. In Greek, there are two words used for poor. One, the kind of working poor, hand-to-mouth living. The other, for the utterly destitute, unable to sustain themselves. That's the word that Jesus uses. But not of the materially impoverished, but of the spiritually impoverished. Oh, the blessedness of the spiritually bankrupt who know they have no means to help themselves. It's often difficult to share the good news of Jesus because the good news of Jesus meets a need we don't readily acknowledge. You are a sinner in need of God's grace and forgiveness. And when we hear that, the walls go up. No, I'm not. I'm not all that bad. I haven't done. I resent those categories. But I wonder if that approach has more to do with Western individualism than it does with the scriptures. What if I were to say, the world is not as it should be? I would say the vast majority of us would say, well, you're not kidding. And the good news is that God in Jesus has come to do something about that. And how does that relate to us individually? Well, the world is not as it should be, and if I'm brutally honest with myself, I'm part of the problem. 
And so if God is coming to do something about the problems of the world and make things new, he's got to make me new. G.K. Chesterton was a great mind of the 20th century, an Englishman. And the Times of London was doing a series in which they were asking the great writers and thinkers of the time to reflect on the question, what is the problem with the world? And Chesterton, a Christian, a kingdom citizen, poor at heart, wrote one line in response to that question. The problem of the world is me. Oh, the blessedness of the poor in spirit. What is the most natural reaction to recognizing that truth about ourselves? Jesus answers, Oh, the blessedness of those who mourn. Well, certainly that includes mourning our sin, but it goes beyond that. For the Beatitudes are describing the new humanity. A new humanity that Jesus perfectly reflects. And so it begs the question, why did Jesus mourn? He didn't mourn his own sin, but he certainly mourned ours in the garden. He mourned the impact of death on the human condition. But he also, as he crested the hill on his way into Jerusalem, began to weep as he foresaw how his people would soon push back against the oppression of Rome with violence and terror and be pulverized. And he wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known what made for peace. The writer and speaker Becky Pipper tells a story of watching the news one day while she was cooking. It was a typical news story. Somebody in a far-off land, people killing one another, blood running down faces, women stepping over bodies in the streets. As she was cooking, she put butter in the pan, and her three-year-old daughter came in and stood transfixed by what she saw on the television. And suddenly she exclaimed, Mommy, why are they so bad? Why are they so mad? Where's their mommy? And Becky said she rushed up and turned off the TV, realizing in that moment something. That it took truly fresh, objective eyes to see what she, we should all see. That human existence is appalling. But we've grown used to it. We hardly blink at it. Oh, the blessedness of those who mourn mourn our sin, and the impact of sin and death, mourn the hold that evil and injustice has on our world, but with a particular kind of mourning. Jesus uses the word to mourn as you would for a loved one who has died. The new humanity is recreated in us by sorrow and repentance, but not the amount of it, but the depth. Oh, the blessedness of those who mourn. Oh, the blessedness of those who are meek. I think we hear this word as synonymous with gentleness, weakness, mild-manneredness. But no, the word was used of a wild animal that had been tamed 
unbridled. It speaks of a person whose every passion, every impulse, every desire is put into its proper place. It is the natural state of someone who's mourning their spiritual bankruptcy and cries out, Oh Lord, order my disordered desires. Direct my passions toward good and glorious ends. For I am destitute, unable to help myself. Oh, the blessedness of the meek. Oh, the blessedness of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Without water, you'd likely survive a few days. Without food, a few months. Food and water are essential to human flourishing, as is righteousness. We hunger and thirst for what we don't have. This is a foreign and alien righteousness. The reformed among us will see this as the imputed righteousness of Christ. That on the cross there's this great exchange. That Jesus takes upon himself our sin and pays the full penalty for it. And in exchange gives us his perfect record. Such that when the father looks at us he sees the beauty, the perfection, the goodness of his son. You are loved, you're forgiven, you are good in his eyes. It is indeed that, but it is more. It is taking on the character of Jesus, reflecting this new humanity, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. Indeed that, but far more. The Hebrews used the word righteousness to speak of our world being made right. It's about justice for the oppressed, freedom for the captives, the lifting up of the poor, the welcome of the stranger. Oh, the blessedness of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. All of righteousness. As Moses from the Mount brings the Ten Commandments, five of which have to do with our relationship with God, five of which our relationship with others, Jesus from the Mount pronounces blessing, four of which have to do with our relationship with God, four of which our relationship with others. And here's the turning point. Oh, the blessedness of the merciful. The relationships of a kingdom people are marked by mercy. Mercy is about so vibrating with compassion for others that we give more than is deserved. Forgiveness is an example of mercy. As we do not return another's wrong for our wrong, we absorb their wrong and return forgiveness. Bearing another's burdens is mercy. For we cannot bear another's burden without some of it falling on our shoulders. When we say or think, well, I can't afford to help or give, what we mean is, I can't afford to help unless some of it falls on my shoulders. And if I help, if I give that time, that energy, that resource, it's going to impact me. I'm not going to be able to do the thing I want to do on the weekend. I'm going to have to put aside my plans for your sake. But a kingdom person has been touched by the mercy of God who on the cross extends to us more than we deserve. And having tasted that mercy, 
we extend mercy. The blessedness of the merciful. The blessedness of those who are pure in heart. Purity is a difficult word, isn't it? We often think of it in terms of morality, purity culture, and things like that. But pure has more to do with things like wheat, wine, metal. Pure is wheat that has been freed from the chaff. Pure is wine that hasn't been watered down. Pure is metal that has no tinge of alloy. Pure in what way? In heart. We often think of our heart as the seat of our emotions, but not so for the original listeners. The heart was the control center of the human personality. As your drive shaft is to your car, as your operating system to your smartphone, so is the heart to the human person. It is what catches up our will, our mind, our emotions. The pure in heart are those that have their will, their mind, their emotions all directed toward the same end. They are free, as one commentator put it, from the tyranny of the divided self. And that is a desperately needed quality, isn't it? How many of us will say, I know the right thing to do in this situation, but I just can't do it. The mind and the will are out of sync. Or I know know how I should view or see this situation, but I just don't feel it. The mind and the emotion are out of sync. The pure in heart are fully integrated. It's about integrity. The blessedness of the pure in heart. The blessedness of the peacemakers. As a kingdom, people were given a new mission. The mission of the Father whose entire being is given over to bringing peace, shalom, for flourishing in every aspect of life. It is, yes, about mending broken relationships, but far more than that. It's about hungering and thirsting for what will make the world right. Lifting up the poor, freedom to the captives, justice to the oppressed, welcome to the stranger. And peacemaking requires all of the other Beatitudes. Poverty of spirit, mourning, hunger for righteousness, meekness, purity of heart. All of these things are the ingredients of peacemaking. And finally, oh, the blessedness of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Jesus rephrases that final beatitude in verses 11 and 12, moving from the third person to the second. Jesus is saying here, here's the evidence that the ways of the kingdom are taking root in your life, that you're about the business of peacemaking. You'll be persecuted. You'll be spoken poorly of. You'll be reviled. Now, this often gets interpreted as, well, I've got these Christian convictions on all the hot-button issues of our day, and when I speak about them, they're not really all that well-received. I'm being persecuted for righteousness' sake. Well, maybe. Maybe you're just being a jerk. Holding those convictions with self-righteous judgment. Being quick to speak and slow to listen. Holding those convictions without an ounce of love. Or grace. 
Again, the Beatitudes are pointing to a new humanity that is perfectly realized in Jesus. And so it begs the question, why was Jesus persecuted? He was persecuted for who he spent time with. Sinners and tax collectors, extending love and forgiveness. He was persecuted for pushing back against the religious elite for their oppression of their people. Persecuted for upsetting the status quo. Perhaps this beatitude should point us to the likes of Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Corey Ten Boom, William Wilberforce. Oh, the blessedness of those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Does not our world need a beatitude people? A people of a new humanity, a people of the kingdom? Of course. Of course. So be beatitude people. Be poor in spirit, mourn, be merciful, hunger and thirst for righteousness. No, 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 no. These are not commands. These are pronouncements of blessing. Pronouncements over those in whom the kingdom is taking hold, in whom the spirit of the living God is at work. So what then shall we do? Well, the way that Matthew introduces the sermon tells us how. And Jesus went up onto the mountain and sat down, and his disciples came to him. They came to him. Go to him. Go to him. He is the one in whom this new humanity is realized for it is in him, through him, connected to him, that we will find this new humanity recreated in us. For the Beatitudes are the fruit of receiving his love and his good news. Go to him. And how shall we go to him? Well, every word in the Hebrew vocabulary of praise anticipated a particular posture. And the word bless gives us a picture of one coming to Jesus, getting down on their knees in a sign of humility, extending their hands in a posture of reception. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to you I cling. Go to him. Go to him. And he will open up the storehouses of the heavens to you. He will pour out the fullness of his spirit upon you that that new humanity might be recreated in you. Oh, the blessedness of. The blessedness of. Amen. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.